You are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray that this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God, and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, this should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement. The pastor God has put over your life or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. We are going to be beginning a new series today. We finished up the book of Exodus last week, and so for Advent we are going to be spending some time in the book of Lamentations. So join me in reading from Lamentations chapter 1 this morning. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks among all her lovers. She has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire into my bones, He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. 
Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns, my heart is wrung within me, because I have been very rebellious. In the street the sword bereaves, in the house it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble, for they are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced, now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that um, it was for the people of Israel then and that it is for us now. Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts as we... um, hear your word as we hear Pastor Rob teach us this morning. Lord, I pray that we would not seek comfort in things that promise comfort that can actually deliver none of it to us, things that will abandon us or fall away because they are not able to sustain themselves. But Lord, would we find um, the true source of our joy and our comfort in you this morning. In your name, amen. Well, hey, Renaissance Church family. Um, As you've heard already, uh, my name is Pastor Rob, if you're new with us, and today we begin our uh, first Sunday in the 2020 season of Advent. Now, for some of you who aren't familiar with uh, the term Advent, Advent uh, just, it's, it just means that we're waiting on an arrival. It's, it's anticipation, it's longing, it's expectation for all the wrongs in our world to be made right. We, we wait for the coming of of Jesus, that the king, the return of the king to unite heaven and to unite earth, because he's promising that he's going to make all things new. We, we wait for those days. And here we have, in Lamentations, Israel waiting, but she's waiting with tears. We just finished the book of Exodus, where, where Israel was, was enslaved She was afflicted, and she had no rest. But then God, her Redeemer, came and rescued her, brought her into a land flowing with milk and honey to give her true rest, Sabbath rest. And if you keep reading the narrative of the Bible, you see that as generations pass, Israel finds herself in a completely different predicament. Look what we read in Lamentations chapter 1, verse 3. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She now dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her. In the midst of her distress. How did Judah get here? What what happened? Well, after years of, of warnings, God used Babylon to judge Israel. 
See, in 587 BC, the holy city of Jerusalem fell to the Babylonian army. This was a horrendous catastrophe, and everything was, was carried out by the hands and through the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar. All of Israel's priests, you heard, were gone. Leaders, gone. Women, children, and men, killed. And he had some deported in exile, marching over 600 miles to find their new home in enemy territory. This was disaster and suffering on a monumental scale. And Lamentations is a 70-year funeral service for the death of the city. Now, to prepare you for the book of Lamentations, I I want us to understand four things by by way of introduction. The, The first is that America is not Israel. America is not Israel. We cannot make a beeline from Lamentations to our present day scenario. We have to let the poet, Lady Zion, speak for themselves. We're not to draw parallels here, but we can draw out principles for our grief. Second, Lamentations are funeral songs, what are often called dirges. I mean, so often we we want heroes to emulate in Scripture. We want these picturesque, photoshopped images of green pastures with the words, his mercies are new every morning uh, in the bottom. But that's not what we're going to get here. We have songs that are acrostic in nature, meaning that all these stanzas start with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Stunning poetry. Stunning poetry. When you think about grief and sorrow, it's often disordered. But here, grief and pain is put into an orderly account. From A to Z, it allows laments to fully be expressed while giving limits to our laments. Meaning there's a beginning and an end to our sorrowful tears. Additionally, the meter of this tune is one of a limp. I mean, if you're familiar, even just the slightest, have an elementary understanding of music, you're aware that that music, its meter is repetitive in nature, right? A, A waltz, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Or when you think of pop music, it's one, two, Three, four, a one, two, three, four. But Lamentations, it makes you dance with a limp. It's three plus two. That if you even tried to move to it or sway to it, it would look as if you were limping. One, two, three, one, two. One, two, three, one, two. That's the meter of the song. Pain is written into the pulse of the tune. Lamentations is life in a minor key. Third, we find four characters in these laments. Two have a dialogue. You have Lady Zion, which is Jerusalem personified. And then you have the narrator. Now, some some people think that this is the, the prophet Jeremiah. 
But to honor the anonymous author, I'm simply going to be referring to them as the poet throughout our entire series. Next, you have some onlookers. The first set of onlookers are those who provide no comfort. That's the third person in these songs. But the fourth is another onlooker. It's God, who remains silent the entire five chapters. But just because he's silent doesn't mean he does not hear her cries. He's silent, but he listens. So to sum up, we have Lady Zion, we have the poet, onlookers who provide no comfort, and God who is silent, but listens. Fourth and finally, I know many of you in Renaissance, you either are struggling with tears. For some of you right now, it's hard to hold them back after you heard that first chapter read. Or you can think of someone who is in the dark night of the soul. I want you to hear there are many things that lead to sorrow and sadness. Things like death, our own sin, other people's sin, the fallen nature of our world, sickness, mental health. For some, the weather leads to sadness, loneliness. Or for some of us, we, we just have this low-grade hum of sadness, of melancholy, and we have no idea why it's there. It's just there and present all the time, like a thorn in our side. Often our laments are caused by one culprit. But similarly, it's often a web of many of these things leading to our sadness. And laments, lamentations, will give voice to that pain, voice to those sadness. And it'll teach us what are we to do with our sorrow? What are we to do with our sadness? My hope is as we journey through the book of Lamentations, Lamentations will give us new eyes to see that we live in a broken world. We still have broken lives. And it gives us freedom to express our broken hearts. And in Lamentations 1, we're going to see part of that. We're going to see first point, Lady Zion's calamity. Second point, Lady Zion's cry. And the third point, Lady Zion's confession. And in her calamity, her cry, her confession, as we move through this passage, my hope is that you will see that when all earthly comforters desert you, we can confess and cry to the comforter who sees you. When all comforters desert you, you can confess and cry to the comforter who sees you. So if you're with me right now, um, let's, let's dive into that first point. Lady Zion's calamity. Now some of you right now, um, you might be wondering, what, what on earth is a lament? <laughs> I, I didn't even know Lamentations was in the Bible. It's, it's kind of hidden, right? It's, it's hidden in between the prophet Jeremiah 
and the book of Ezekiel. But laments are not only found here in the book of Lamentations, they're found elsewhere, like in Psalm 10, 63, 74, just to name a few. Laments are found all over the course of Scripture. So what is it? Well, lament is a passionate expression of sorrow towards God. They're faith-filled, tear-stricken complaints that things are not right in the world. It recognizes that we live in a broken world, that our lives are broken, and as a result, our hearts are broken. Laments are a gift. They're a gift to bring our sorrows to a God who hears us. Mark Vrogrup, in his book, Deep Pain, or Deep Mercy, Dark Clouds, he writes this. He says, laments give you permission to vocalize your pain as it moves toward God-centered worship and trust. Lament is how you live between the poles of a hard life and trusting God's sovereignty. Lament is how we bring our sorrow to God. Without lament, we don't know how to process pain. This is what the poet is doing. He is processing his pain. I mean, verse 1 opens up with stanzas of the poet looking to the past and the present. Right? If you keep your Bibles open to Lamentations 1 this whole time, you, you can see this. In verse 1, he says, the, the city was now full, was full, and now it's empty. She was once a great city, now she's a widow. She was once a queen, a princess, and now she's a slave. And he says she's violently weeping in verse 2. She's weeping because the nations that she slept with and whored herself out to weren't the lovers that they promised to be. And from verse 4 to 6, we see Zion emptied out. Zion was the center of the land. It's where the temple was. It's where worship was held. It was where the manifestation of the presence of God was, and it's empty. The priests and the women no longer sing hymns of praise, but funeral songs. You hear mourning in verse 4. The roads to Zion mourn, the poet says, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her suffering is beyond imagination, but not beyond explanation. It's unbearable, but it's not innocent. Why? Well, look in verse 5. Because the Lord has afflicted her. For the multitude of her transgressions. He gives the reason why. The Lord has brought affliction because she has sinned. 
But the poet doesn't dwell on the sin just yet. Instead, he wants you to see the horror of Lady Zion, the nation of Judah personified. The horror of her prostituting herself to the gods of other nations. And from verse 7 to 10, he leaves nothing to our imagination. Now remember, God's love for Israel is one of a husband. It's steadfast, hesed love in the Hebrew language. It's covenant loyalty and faithfulness from Yahweh, but Israel has been disloyal and unfaithful. And I want to warn parents right now of of younger kids. The poet gets even more graphic. See, the poet doesn't focus so much on the magnitude of her sin, but the magnitude of her shame, of humiliation, and her disgrace that she faces. You see, the only time that the enemy actually looks on Israel is when the enemy is shaming her. When someone was caught in adultery or prostitution, the city would gather to lift up the skirts of the whore. And that's what's happening in verse 7 and verse 8. They're lifting up the skirts of the whore that is Israel to mock her, to laugh at her, and to shame her. Yes, Lady Zion is suffering the consequences of her prostitution. But she's also suffering the consequence of her enemies. Verse 10 gets even more graphic. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. In this stanza, there is euphemisms. Unwanted sexual groping and unwanting fondling. And it's the horror of gang rape from other nations. This is the real picture of warfare. But it's also the real picture of the spiritual imagery of what our sin is like. And what it's like to be covered in shame. And what it's like to be sinned against by others. The woman betrayed by her lovers is the country betrayed by her allies. The mother who has lost her children in verse 5 is the city lamenting the exile. The sexual violation of Lady Zion in verse 12 is the religious violation of the center of the temple, the holy temple precincts that we just learned about. The sexual sin of immorality is the manifestation of sinful idolatry, looking to the world for comforts instead of their God. See this funeral march, it moves back and forth between the figurative and the literal so much that it blends together. This is Lady Zion's calamity. And in case you can't see it, the poet wants you to hear it. He wants you to hear Lady Zion's cry. She says in verse 12, Is it nothing to you? Is it nothing to you, all who pass by? Look and see if there's, any, if there's any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. 
Is there any suffering like my suffering, she says? Has anyone suffered like me before? I wonder, have you ever been there before? It's not just that you are suffering. It's as if you're suffering alone. It's not just that you're experiencing pain, but nobody knows or understands the pain you are going through. It's a pain that is all-encompassing. That word all is the most repeated word in the first chapter of Lamentations. All her lovers, all her friends, gone. All pursue her to shame her. All her children are gone as slaves now. Verse 5, all her enemies are gone, are, are now looking upon her. All the food is now gone in verse 10. All of her sins and her shame is exposed. Verse 22, the repetition shows the total carnage and the complete oppression from her enemies. Total loss of property. Total loss of food. Total loss of camaraderie. Total shame. Total lack of sympathy, total and complete guilt before her God. And no one, no one is there to comfort her, she says. No one turns to see her devastation. So she cries out in verse 9, behold. She says, look in verse 11. And then she says, there is no one, you heard it read, no one to comfort her. Five times. There's none to comfort me. Verse 2. None to comfort me. Verse 9. None to comfort me. Verse 16. There's none to comfort me. Verse 17. It's like her voice is getting hoarser and hoarser. None to comfort me. In verse 21. She's saying, look at me. Would someone just look at me? Would someone just notice me? Does anybody care? Don't you see me? The poet is forcing us to hear. He's forcing us to look. Now, many of you probably experienced a small portion of this over your holiday. I mean, as you're sitting down to watch a, a rerun on, on TBS or having, you know, one of those frequent non-awkward conversations with family members, the TV's on in the background, and you hear, hear Sarah McLaughlin's voice singing Arms of an Angel. And there's mistreated animals on the screen, or starving children, and you can't bear it for a second longer, so you change the channel. We've been conditioned to look away. We've even been conditioned to get other people to look away from our own shame and sorrow, where we don't voice our laments and our pain. But the poet is inviting us not just to cry out, but to look. For the only ones looking right now are her enemies, and they're glad. Enemies keep opening up those wounds. Enemies keep mocking. Enemies keep hurling shame. But the people of God are called to look on the mourner's pain, to weep, to cry tears, 
And as Christians, we, as one part of the body hurts, ought not the rest of the body to ache as well? I mean, tears are what happen when you truly see. I mean, really look at a situation. I mean, my, my wife was telling me about a conversation she was having with a friend. That tears come when you are really taking notice of someone or something. Mm-hmm. And looking is not just with our eyes. It's looking with our soul. It's looking with our heart. It's looking with our mind. If we would do that, sorrow would follow. The Apostle Paul doesn't just tell us in Romans 12, verse 15, to rejoice with those who rejoice. What does he say? Can you say it out loud with me? Weep with those who weep. In Jesus, he took notice. Look what we read in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. When he, that's Jesus, saw the crowds, it doesn't say he turned away. No, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. Like sheep without a shepherd. Was it their fault that they were there? Yes. Was it other people's fault that they were like sheep without a shepherd? Yes. Jesus still looked and had compassion. The poet is inviting us to look, to comfort, to have pity, to have compassion, to hurt with those who hurt, to notice those who go unnoticed, to weep with those who weep. But Lady Zion, as she cries, she just doesn't want us to hear her tears or see her tears and hear her cries. She wants us to hear a word of warning. She's not just confessing her sin. She is confessing who has afflicted her. Might come as a surprise to some of you. It was the Lord who afflicted her. Multiple times we see that throughout this lament. Her sin has brought down on her the consequence that God promised would follow. Look what we read. Just for an example, in verse 15c through 16a, the Lord has trodden in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. This is why she weeps. For these things I weep, for my eyes flow with tears. Lady Zion's cry recognized that she got what she deserved. She recognized that God has punished her, but in the same breath, she pleads with the same God who punished her to have pity on her. She reaches out to God to pull him down, not just to see her pain, but to share in her shame. And little does she know that God would indeed one day come down. God himself would suffer nakedness. God himself would bear shame, scoffing rude and being despised by others, rejected. He would be a man of sorrows, acquainted with much grief. But we are a long way off from that redemptive moment here. There's still more tears. There's still more grief to come. We've seen her calamity. We've heard her cries. And now let's listen in and learn from Lady Zion's confession. She says in verse 18, 
the Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. Jerusalem deserves this and she knows it. Lady Zion's confession wasn't arrived at simplistic 60-second prayers, but through deep pain and long-suffering. She's well aware of her wrongs. She knows that she's ignored years of warnings. If you want to read them, Go back to Leviticus chapter 26 or Deuteronomy chapter 28 and hear God's warnings. This corporate confession. Remember, Lady Zion is all of Israel personified. This is a corporate confession of guilt, of idolatry. This is corporate confession of injustices towards the fatherless, the widow, and the foreigner. This is corporate confession of of running away from their God and running towards the nation's God. And God has righteously brought corporate judgment and punishment on Israel. And God is good for doing it. We know this to be true when we think of God as a father. Because when we see parents follow through on their warnings, we say that's a good parent. That's a parent who loves their child to guide them, to guard them, to protect them by following through with punishments and consequences. But parents who are indifferent, they give those false, empty threats when we see them out in public. There's no consequences for the kids. Do we think that they're loving or unloving? Lady Zion has a God who is a good father who doesn't just have empty threats, but he follows through on his word. God has dealt with her, has been just, and has been faithful to all of his words. And it brings a strange comfort to her. I wonder if you noticed it. That if God was faithful to his warnings to Israel, that means he's going to be faithful to his judgment on the nations. God is faithful. He's faithful. That's why she cries out to him in verse 22. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. Do you you see the pattern here? She takes ownership of her own sin first. No attempts to plead innocence while she's pleading for justice. Treat others, she says, as you have treated me. There's this temptation in our culture, even within the walls of the church, that there's a temptation to take our own pain, our own afflictions, our own hurt, and only play the victim card. I don't deserve any of this. I'm in the right, they're in the wrong. Or we swing the pendulum. 
We, we, we either say of ourselves, I'm completely in the wrong. I got what I deserved. Or we point the finger at folks and say they got what they deserve. They shouldn't have been wearing that or they shouldn't have been there in that circumstance. That's why they're in the trouble they're in. No, lamentations won't allow us to have that simplistic of a response. The entire of, entirety of the Bible won't allow us to have the simplicity of that response. We can't oversimplify the complex nature that is sin and the fallen nature of our broken world from Genesis 3 to today. We cannot say it's completely their fault and not their fault. We cannot say it's us versus them. We have to humbly say it's all of us against him. And when we're caring for people, God invites us not to condemn, but to bring comfort. He invites us to show compassion that he might bring conviction. Our job is to show compassion. God's job is to bring conviction. See, enemies, like I said earlier, they keep heaping more shame on those who already know that they're swimming in their cesspool of sin. They're basically holding their head under the water, saying, you got what you deserved. It only makes sense that you're here. If you'd have done X, Y, or Z, you wouldn't have been here. But family in Christ, they take notice of the person who's drowning in their shame, drowning in their disgrace, pulls them out and sits with them, weeps them with them, and provides comfort to them because godly grief leads to comfort. Godly grief leads to comfort. Godly grief is grief over the things that grieve the Lord. Our sin, our brokenness, personal sin, corporate sin, the world sin, and it leads us to confession and repentance, which is what we see Lady Zion doing in her groaning and her faint heart over and again. And she confesses. Why? Because there's a seed of hope in God's judgment and affliction. If God is a faithful judge and he was faithful to his words of warnings, that means that God's going to be faithful to forgive when we turn to him. And there's going to be an abounding mercy and grace and steadfast love like steady streams of a river. And she invites us to cry out with her, to confess with her, to cry out in pain, cry out for justice, cry out for comfort. And the silent God of the book is actually speaking because this book is part of his written word. And he does not remain silent through his other prophets. When he brings comfort to Jerusalem, when he sends the comforter, Christ, the Messiah, the Lord, who not only comes to comfort the city, but he comes with tears in his eyes, as a man of sorrow, acquainted with much grief, and yet Jesus was without sin. Jesus came into a world 
where he and his mother were weeping, with Israel weeping, for King Herod had murdered all boys underneath the age of two. Jesus not only wept over Jerusalem like Lady Zion, but Jesus also suffered desertion of friends, taunts from enemies, and apathy from passerbys as he hung on the cross. Like her, Jesus was stripped naked, publicly humiliated, with none to comfort him. Like her, Jesus suffered at the hands of merciless foreign enemies through their blood and brutality. Was there indeed any suffering like Christ's suffering when the Lord laid upon him the iniquity and sorrow and shame of us all when he poured out his anger on Jesus? Like her, Jesus became unclean, defiled by somebody else's sin. God made Jesus to be sin so that we, when we put our faith in Jesus, are now seen as sinless. We become the righteousness of God. We are now clothed in righteousness because Jesus was clothed in our shame. And in that state of uncleanliness as he hung from the cross, God could not look upon Jesus. could not look upon him that the awful cry of dereliction wrenched from Psalm 22, another lament, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It speaks the unspeakable horrors of divine abandonment. The horror of being left alone, to suffer alone. A depth of suffering, a depth of hell, a depth more infinite than Lady Zion, all the psalmists and all of our laments could not imagine. And at that moment, too, God refrained from answering. He refrained from speaking like in Lamentations. And the silence of God offers the redemption of men and women to the God that they forsook and abandoned. In Christ, God is sending proof in Christ Jesus on the cross. It's proof that God sees your pain. It's proof that God notices your trials. He hears your cries because from that cross, Jesus cries, forgive them. Forgive them. Even with our imperfect laments, imperfect confessions, we're accepted through Jesus' lament from the cross to forgive us. And Jesus' proof that God will answer all of our laments. God will hear all of our cries of pain. It's proof in the empty tomb that Christ will come one day come one day to wipe away every tear from our grieving eye. And so the invitation of lamentations, the invitation of the cross and the, of the empty tomb is come and bring your sorrow. Come and bring your pain. Come and bring your tears. God is here to comfort you that your tears have an end date. And he's here to comfort you and listen to you in the meantime. See, we as Christians, we ought to be the most saddest 
yet hope-filled people on the planet. We are to be the saddest because we see the world as God truly sees it, broken. We were plagued with joy and plagued with hope because this is not our final resting place. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not how we bring ourselves to God. Our hope is in Christ who gave himself up, who was the suffering servant, the one who grieved perfectly in our place. And he's coming back and he's promised to right all wrongs, to make as my children's storybook Bible says, to make all the sad things come untrue. But until then, Oh, let us be a people who follow God's example. That as people are mourning and lamenting, we let them be fully heard and fully known before imposing our voice, claiming to be the voice of God. Let us be a people who give ourselves permission to lament well and to be sad, to cry tears, and give others the same space. So that in our notice of them, they might feel noticed by God. So that in our comfort of them, they might not feel condemned by God, but welcomed by God. Let us give ourselves and others permission to vocalize pain, not just to remain there, but pain that leads to God-centered worship and trust that God is sovereign and he's working even our tears out for the good of those who love him. Let's be a people who admit that we live between the poles of a hard place and God's good control of our lives. Lament is how we bring sorrow to God. Lament is how we process our pain. Oh, let us be a people who process this together towards God. Let us be a people when our neighbors are crying out. When we cry out, we won't sound like Lady Zion. There's none to comfort us. But we would draw near and comfort others, for we have been comforted by the Father through Christ and His Spirit. Amen. As we wait, let us have hope-filled sorrow. Let us be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Would you pray with me? Father, I confess that I don't know how to lament well. I confess that I'm 